I want you to turn with me to Genesis chapter 3 this morning. Genesis chapter number 3 this morning. Everybody in the room is about to be disappointed. Genesis chapter number 3. And I am going to preach to you a Christmas message. You know, one of my favorite things to do in studying the Word of God, we did this as a series last year or the year before or something. I've, I've, I've blacked out most Christmases, but at some point we've, uh, we, we did a little series where we looked at Christmas in each of the Gospels. And if you'll look, it's found in all four of them. Now you might think it's only found in Matthew and in Luke, but if you look in the book of Mark, you'll, you'll find Christmas there. Uh, you'll find it in the silences of Scripture because the Bible teaches that uh, that Christ is the servant of God and servant of man. And that's what the book of Mark uh, reflects to us is the silence concerning those things. And so his birth is not emphasized uh, in the book of Mark, but it's it's found, it's contained there, the, the paramount things. Then the book of John, of course, presents him as the Son of God, as the eternal uh, God, as God the Son. And so Christmas is found in the book of John, chapter number 1. In the beginning was the Word, and the Word was made flesh. That's Christmas, right? The Word was made flesh and dwelt amongst us, and we beheld His glory like as the only begotten of the Father, full of grace and truth. That's what Christmas is. It's the incarnation, the manifestation. You find the same principles there. He In Luke chapter 2, He is born into this world, and, and there is no room that is found for Him. And John chapter 1 contains that, right? He came unto His own, but His own received Him not, but to as many as received Him, to them gave Him power to become the sons of God, even to them which believe on His name. I mean, all the components are found there of Christmas in the book of John. But do you know that if you begin looking at other books of the Bible, you'll find a very similar trend. In fact, in the book of Genesis, you might have never thought you'd find it there, but in Genesis chapter number 3, we actually have a telling of the Christmas story. Now, it is not a narrative telling, but it is a typological telling. In other words, it foreshadows some things about Christmas and what Christmas is about. You know, I'll be honest with you. I mean, listen, I like Christmas cookies as much as the next guy. My problem with Christmas has never been uh, the idea of, you know, cookies and spending time with family and eggnog. Somebody say amen to that. And, uh, but the problem is the wrong focus. There's a wrong focus at this time of year. And so one of the beautiful things about looking for Christmas elsewhere in the Bible is it forces you to distill Christmas down to what is the fundamental purposes of it. And we'll find that there are about four things that the Christmas story was really about. And I'm not saying that the shepherds aren't important. The Holy Ghost put them in there and, and they were there and they matter. I'm, I'm not saying that the wise men are not important. They ain't got anything to do with Christmas. Somebody say amen to that. But, but uh, they're there in the Christmas narrative. And I, I'm not saying that the heavenly host proclaiming is not, is not important. Uh, of course, uh, they were there and the Lord ordered that. But there are certain principles that are uh, that are in play in the Christmas story, that are featured in the Christmas story. And if we look in Genesis 3, we'll find these same things in this story. Genesis chapter number 3, I'd like to begin reading in verse number 1. The Bible says this, Now the serpent was more subtle than any beast of the field which the Lord God had made. It's of course speaking of the devil there. He took form as a serpent. And he said unto the woman, Yea, hath God said, Ye shall not eat of every tree of the garden. And the woman said unto the serpent, We may eat of the fruit of the trees of the garden, but of the fruit of the tree which is in the midst of the garden, God hath said, Ye shall not eat of it, neither shall ye touch it, lest ye die. And the serpent said unto the woman, Ye shall not surely die, for God doth know that in the day ye eat thereof, then your eyes shall be opened, and ye shall be as gods, knowing good and evil. When the woman saw that the tree was good for food, and that it was pleasant to the eyes, and a tree to be desired to make one wise, 
she took of the fruit thereof and did eat, and gave also unto her husband with her, and he did eat. And the eyes of them both were open, and they knew that they were naked, and they sewed fig leaves together, and made themselves aprons. And they heard the voice of the Lord God walking in the garden in the cool of the day. And Adam and his wife hid themselves from the presence of the Lord God amongst the trees of the garden. And the Lord God called unto Adam and said unto him, Where art thou? And he said, I heard thy voice in the garden, and I was afraid because I was naked, and I hid myself. And he said, Who told thee that thou wast naked? Hast thou eaten of the tree whereof I commanded thee that thou shouldest not eat? And the man said, The woman whom thou gavest to be with me, she gave me of the tree, and I did eat. And the Lord God said unto the woman, What is this that thou hast done? And the woman said, The serpent beguiled me, and I did eat. And the Lord God said unto the serpent, Because thou hast done this, thou art cursed above all cattle, and above every beast of the field. Upon thy belly thou shalt thou go, and dust shalt thou eat all the days of thy life. And I will put enmity between thee and the woman, and between thy seed and her seed. It shall bruise thy head, and thou shalt bruise his heel." Unto the woman he said, I will greatly multiply thy sorrow and thy conception. In sorrow thou shalt bring forth children, and thy desire shall be to thy husband, and he shall rule over thee. And unto Adam he said, Because thou hast hearkened unto the voice of thy wife, and hast eaten of the tree of which I commanded thee, saying, Thou shalt not eat of it, cursed is the ground for thy sake. In sorrow thou shalt thou eat of it all the days of thy life. Thorns also and thistles shall it bring forth to thee, and thou shalt eat the herb of the field. In the sweat of thy face shalt thou eat bread, till thou return unto the ground, for out of it wast thou taken. For dust thou art, and unto dust shalt thou return. And Adam called his wife's name Eve, because she was the mother of all living. Unto Adam also, and to his wife, did the Lord God make coats of skins and clothe them. We'll stop reading there. Father, I pray this morning that you'd take your word and that you'd wield it, Lord, in the way that only you can. I pray that the Holy Ghost, Lord, would energize, empower, and enable the preaching of thy word today. Lord, do it in such a way that Christ and he alone would receive glory. I pray that you'd take me out of the way, Lord. I know if I am to be the one to produce anything today, nothing will happen. Lord, I know that if I'm the one that is being looked to today, I will only fail, I'll only disappoint. So Lord, take me out of the way. Hide me behind your cross, Lord, and let them only see Christ and Him both crucified, resurrected, magnified, and glorified. And I pray, Father, that as the Word of God does its work today, that we would have our hearts yielded to the truth. And Lord, that we would be willing and eager to see You work in our hearts and lives. And we'll be sure to thank You for what takes place, for certainly thanks will be due unto You and You alone. Lord, we love You, and we ask it in Christ's name. Amen. Now, as we said this morning, there are certain fundamental components of the Christmas story. And if you sort of read the Christmas story as a composite, almost like a mosaic, if you just read through all the portions of it, you will find that certain uh, important truths are featured within it. And that's what I want to take a few moments and do this morning. I want us to look at Genesis 3. I want us to look at some of the Christmas passages. And I want us to consider the major truths that are contained within them. For instance, let me read a little bit to you out of Luke chapter number 2. That, of course, is where you thought I'd be preaching this morning, unless you know me. And uh, so I want you to listen to how it begins. It says, And it came to pass in those days that there went out a decree from Caesar Augustus that all the world should be taxed. And this taxing was first made when Serenius was governor of Syria. And all went to be taxed, every one into his own city. 
Joseph also went up from Galilee out of the city of Nazareth into Judea under the city of David, which is called Bethlehem, because he was of the house and lineage of David, to be taxed with Mary, his espoused wife, being great with child. And so it was that while they were there, the days were accomplished that she should be delivered. And she brought forth her firstborn son and wrapped him in swaddling clothes and laid him in a manger. Why did they do that? Because there was no room for them in the end. Now somebody's going to say, Preacher, I love Luke chapter 2, I love Genesis 3. But how could they ever be connected? When we read the Christmas story, we find four truths that are featured. And the first is a defiled earth is spoken of. You say, preacher, what do you mean? Well, I mean this, that when the Savior, when Messiah came, He came into a world that is fundamentally broken. Uh, when we read Luke chapter number 2, it just drips with nostalgia. You think back to Mamma or Papa and the smell of wood smoke and the popcorn strung around the tree. But if you read with fresh eyes Luke chapter number 2, what you find is a world that is deeply in trouble, that the authority of which has been wrestled away from God. It is a world that is under pagan Gentile rule. It is a world where taxation has become a burden and has become a responsibility upon the people. And even where the Lord Jesus is born in the uh, little town of Bethlehem, we sang about it this morning. We think of Bethlehem as this precious and sweet little hamlet, the Mayberry of the Middle East. But if you read the history of Bethlehem in the Bible, you'll find that up till that moment there hadn't ever been a good thing come out of Bethlehem. Uh, if you were to go back, what you'd find is you'd find a uh, Levite woman, uh, that is, or the wife of a Levite, who is a concubine who has come out of Bethlehem. If you were to read back, you'd find a little family that left out of Bethlehem in rebellion against God and went down to the town of Moab, down to the country of Moab, because they were fleeing a famine. Though it was the house of bread, up till this point there didn't tend to be much bread found there. I'm saying this, there is a defiled, sin-cursed, broken world that the Messiah came into. So when I read Genesis chapter 3, what do I find there? Well, I find that there too a defiled world is spoken of. I find back in verses 6-8 through eight of our text in Genesis 3 that it was a world that had rejected God. Now, there were only two human beings that were walking the earth at that time and both of them went right with God. The Bible says in verse number 6, when the woman saw that the tree was good for food and that it was pleasant to the eyes and a tree to be desired to make one wise, she took of the fruit thereof and did eat and gave also unto her husband with her and he did eat. And the eyes of them both were open. And they knew that they were naked. They have awareness now of their sin. Awareness of their condition. And they sewed fig leaves together and made themselves apron. Instead of coming to God and confessing their sin, they try to conceal and hide their sin. And they heard the voice of the Lord God walking in the garden in the cool of the day. And Adam and his wife hid themselves from the presence of the Lord God amongst the trees of the garden. Instead of coming to God for grace and for mercy, they're hiding themselves away. I'm saying this, in Adam and Eve we find in germ form and example of the condition of the world when the Messiah came. We think of it as this wonderful, beautiful time. For some reason we imagine there was snow on the ground. I don't know why. Same reason we imagine there's wise men at the manger. Amen, I guess. And by the way, don't nobody mess with our dinosaur up here. Uh, uh, somebody somebody back of this thought the kid had put, that's our nativity scene dinosaur that we keep in the nativity scene if you ain't seen it. And somebody asked me, said, Preacher, why do you keep it there? Because it's got as much right to be there as the wise men. Somebody say amen. If they get to be there, the dinosaur gets to be there, all right? <laughs> we imagine and view the world as this very idyllic place. 
But the reality is when the Messiah robed Himself in flesh and stepped into this world, it was a world that had rejected Him. It was a world that had not heard the voice of God for 450 years. It was a world where the only true light of revelation there had been so clouded and so dampened by man's traditions and man's religion that when the Messiah walks onto the world stage, they don't love Him, they loathe Him. Uh, They don't receive Him, they reject Him. They don't crown Him, they crucify Him. Uh, And likewise, Adam and Eve when the Lord deals with them in Genesis 3, He is dealing with a people that has rejected Him. God gave them one command. They said, that's too many. I can't keep it. Can I just tell you something? This morning? I might preach a little bit. You say, well, preacher, you know, I think I can work my way to heaven. If God only gave you one commandment, you'd still break it. If He gave you one rule, you'd still break it. If there was only one thing God said don't do, that'd be the very thing you'd go do. You know why? Because by the works of the law shall no flesh be justified. The law doesn't justify flesh, it condemns flesh. And we find when we read this that it was a world that had rejected Him, had pushed Him away, had turned Him away. You know, that gives me hope for God to work in our days. Because we're living in a world that is still rejecting God. But I'm glad if God could work in that day, He can still work in this day. It was a world that rejected God. Not only that, we see in verses 9 and 10, the Bible says in our text, And the Lord God called unto Adam and said unto him, Where art thou? And this is what he said. He said, I heard thy voice in the garden and I was afraid because I was naked and I hid myself. Here's what Adam is saying. I knew I had messed up and I knew there wasn't nothing I could do to fix it. I knew the only one that could change it was you and I wasn't sure that you'd be willing to do it. Whenever uh, uh, the Lord deals with Adam in this passage, he is dealing with a world that not only has rejected God, but a world that is hopelessly fallen. Adam was fresh out of ideas of how to fix the mess he had created for himself. And you know, when you come to Luke chapter number 2, that's what you find likewise. You find a group of people that the only semblance of true religion, as we said, had been so clouded and so corrupted by man's tradition that the men that were living in that day were having to climb over their religious leaders to find God. A world that was hopelessly fallen, that had no ability to change itself, to redeem itself, to transform itself. And likewise today, the lost sinner in and of himself has no means, no ability, no righteous, no meritness, no worth whatsoever to try to fix himself. If God don't fix him, he can't be fixed. And Adam, when he deals with God, God says, why would you hide? He said, because that's all I could do. You know, to this day, that's how the lost sinner views his interaction with God. He's just trying to hide out from him until he inevitably has to face him. I'm glad we don't have to do that. I'm glad, hey, there's a sacrifice, there's a payment been made, and there's a relationship we can have with him. Through the blood of Jesus Christ, it is a world that is hopelessly fallen. And then look at what verses 16 through 19 say of our text. It says, Unto the woman, he said, I will greatly multiply thy sorrow and thy conception. In sorrow thou shalt bring forth children, and thy desire shall be to thy husband, and he shall rule over thee. A lot of people have wondered about that verse, what that means. Whenever God created man and woman, there was no need for a model or structure of authority in the home because they were both innocent. But with sin, there was a necessity of a law, of a constraint. Just as in the Old Testament, the law was given not because of man's righteousness, but because of his unrighteousness. Likewise, when mankind sinned and there was no longer an innate, an intrinsic harmony in their home, there had to be a structure that was provided because of that. So we see what? Sin has broken her childbearing. Sin has broken her home. It says, and unto Adam he said, because thou hast hearkened unto the voice of thy wife, and has eaten of the tree of which I commanded thee, saying, Thou shalt not eat of it. Listen to what it says. Cursed is the ground for thy sake. 
and sorrow shalt thou eat of it all the days of thy life. Thorns also and thistles shall it bring forth to thee. I want you to notice this. And thou shalt eat the herb of the field. Vegetarianism was a curse upon mankind because of their sin. Am I right? Or am I right? He's, he's saying, here's all the, here's, here's all the punishment for you sinning. And one of them is you're going to have to eat salad. Amen. Thou shalt eat the herb of the field. In the sweat of thy face shalt thou eat bread. And the problem with bread, let me say this. The problem with bread wasn't that it was bad as they'd have to work for it. Amen. I guess God destroyed all them bread trees. Till thou return unto the ground, for out of it was thou taken, for dust thou art, and unto dust shalt thou return. Whenever the Messiah comes into the world, it is a world that had rejected God, just as Adam and Eve had. It is a world that was hopelessly fallen, just as Adam and Eve were hopelessly fallen, and mankind still is today apart from Christ. But it was also a world that was broken by sin. In other words, because of man's disobedience, there is disarray. And there is an authority that must providentially be instituted that was not necessarily initially a part of God's design and desire for His creation. You know, you find the same thing when you go to Luke chapter 2. Don't you think for one moment that the Romans snuck onto the world throne without God knowing about it? He, he raised them up just like He tore them down. But had the Jews received their Messiah, there would have been a different form of government that could have been instituted. But of necessity, this Gentile age, time of Gentiles, that had begun when Nebuchadnezzar invaded Jerusalem was still persisting then. It's still persisting now. Why is that? Because this world is a cursed world. It is a broken world. It is a world of toil, a world of sorrow, and a world of trouble. So in many ways, when we read Genesis 3, the same mess that they were in in Genesis 3 is the same mess that the Messiah found this world in. And by the way, you know it's still the same mess that this world today is in apart from Christ. It is still a defiled world. It is still a world that rejects God. It's still a world uh, that is broken by sin. It is still a world that is hopelessly fallen. But I'm glad the Christmas story don't end there. And I'm glad the story in Genesis 3 doesn't end there. Because we find, number one, a defiled earth is spoken of. But number two, look at verse 15 with me. I like this, 14. It says, And the Lord God said unto the serpent, Because thou hast done this, Thou art cursed above all cattle and above every beast of the field. Upon thy belly shalt thou go, and dust shalt thou eat all the days of thy life. Now notice verse 15. And I will put enmity between thee and the woman, and between thy seed, the seed of the serpent, the seed of the devil, and her seed, the seed of the woman. It shall bruise thy head, and thou shalt bruise his heel. You see, when I read Luke Chapter number 2, here's what I read about. I read that a divine birth is spoken of. And when I read Genesis chapter 3, you know what I read? I read that a divine birth is spoken of. I think Matthew's account of it is very important. The angel's speaking, of course, to Joseph, to the stepfather of Jesus. And it says this in Matthew chapter 1, verse 18. Now the birth of Jesus Christ was on this wise, when as his mother Mary was espoused to Joseph before they came together, she was found with child of the Holy Ghost. Then Joseph, her husband, being a just man and not willing to make her a public example, was minded to put her away privily. But while he thought on these things, behold, the angel of the Lord appeared unto him in a dream, saying, Joseph, thou son of David, fear not to take unto thee Mary thy wife, for that which is conceived in her is of the Holy Ghost. And she shall bring forth a son, 
Thou shalt call His name Jesus, for He shall save His people from their sins. Now all this was done that it might be fulfilled which was spoken of the Lord by the prophet, saying, Behold, a virgin shall be with child and shall bring forth a son, and they shall call His name Emmanuel, which being interpreted is God with us. How can we look at the Christmas story and not notice that one of the central themes is a divine birth? God being manifest in the flesh. God, He did not, God the Son did not begin to exist on that night in Bethlehem. He just began to be manifest on that night in Bethlehem. He had always existed. He is coexistent. He is co-eternal. He is co-equal with God the Father and God the Son. But on that night, He robed Himself in flesh and entered into the creation that He Himself had created. And we find just a hint of this in Genesis chapter 3. Verse 15 speaks of the seed of the woman. This is very instructive for a few reasons. Number one, you know what we see in this? We see number one, a divine name. This is interesting in Matthew's account and in Luke's account. The name of Jesus is shown to be a heavenly name, a divine name. It is the Greek transliteration of the Old Testament name Joshua. And it means salvation is from Jehovah or Jehovah's salvation. And the angel, whenever he was disclosing the birth of the Lord Jesus, he did not leave it up to chance. He didn't say, you can call him Steve, you can call him Gary, you can call him Kenny. He said, no, this is to be his name because his name matters. It is to be the name Jesus. It's a name of significance. It is a name of power. It is a name of majesty. In fact, there is none other name given among men whereby you must be saved than that of the name of the Lord Jesus Christ. And likewise, in Genesis 3, we are introduced to a divinely given and proclaimed and manifested name of the Messiah. He is called the Seed. In fact, in Genesis chapter number 3, regarding this name, we're told explicitly that that is a divine name of Christ. It says, Now to Abraham and his seed were the promises made. He saith not, And to seeds as of many, but as of one, and to thy seed, which is Christ. So the same way we have a divine name that is mentioned and disclosed in Matthew chapter 1, Luke chapter number 2, we have it in Genesis chapter 3. But not only do we see a divine name, we also see a divine nativity. One of the great truths that we all think about when we think about Christmas is not just the birth of the Lord Jesus, but if you're a Bible believer, you think about the virgin birth of the Lord Jesus. I know the rabbis have tried to twist Scripture and suggest in the book of Isaiah that the word that is used there denotes a young woman. That is factually untrue. But even let's say it could be understood that way. Would that be miraculous? There's young women that give birth to children all over this world every day, all over throughout human history that has taken place. No, the significance of the birth of the Lord Jesus was not that He was born to a young womb, it was that He was born to a virgin's womb, conceived of the Holy Ghost. You're going to say, preacher, well that's good and everything, and I believe it, but I don't see it in Genesis 3. Well, look a little closer. The Bible doesn't just say to seed, it says her seed. Uh, between thee and the woman and between thy seed and her seed. Now, I, I'm not going to take you through a high school health class, but suffice it to say uh, that the seed does not belong to the woman, it belongs to the man. Why does it speak of her seed? Because it is denoting that it had, that she had more claim to it than Joseph did, because that at the end of the day was not native to her, but it was native to the Holy Ghost. In other words, we see that there is a divine nativity, a divine birth that took place on that. And I believe that. I believe that. I believe it unequivocally. I believe it without pausing. I believe it without stuttering. I believe it without taking a second breath. I believe He was born of a virgin, miraculously conceived of the Holy Ghost. 
And the miracle there was not the uh, virginness of uh, Mary, uh, but rather it was the birth of the Lord Jesus. You say, what do you mean, preacher? Uh, well, the thing that is kept in perpetuity was not the virginity of Mary. She went on to have other children uh, by Joseph, uh, and there was nothing inappropriate about that. The thing that was the birth, the miracle of it was the manifestation, the incarnation of God in the flesh. There's a divine nativity, but then that implies something. Now, the Bible's abundantly clear that a person takes on their nature from their father. It's what the book of uh, Romans teaches us concerning our sin nature. Our spiritual nature comes from our Father. The Bible says that uh, wherefore death passed upon all men and that all have sinned, that by one man, by Adam, uh, death and sin passed upon all men. All but one. Because he didn't have an earthly father. And so if it is not Joseph's seed and if it is her seed only by proxy because it is in her womb and we know the Bible teaches abundantly clear whose seed it was. It was divine seed. It was the seed of God. It was the seed of the Holy Ghost. And what kind of nature does he have? He has a divine nature. And the Bible uh, in no uncertain terms discloses this. Matthew one twenty three says, Behold, a virgin shall be with child and shall bring forth a son and they shall call his name Emmanuel, which being interpreted is... God with us. The whole purpose was to manifest God. The Bible says in Luke one thirty five, the angel answered and said unto her, unto Mary, the Holy Ghost shall come upon thee, and the power of the highest shall overshadow thee. Therefore also that holy thing which shall be born of thee shall be called the Son of God. In other words, we see in no uncertain terms a divine nature being imparted. And likewise, we see that in Genesis 3. But now there's a third truth that is, I think, important to the Christmas narrative. I think it's often overlooked, but I think it is fundamental to it. And that is that there's not only a defiled earth that is spoken of, there's not only a divine birth that is spoken of, but there is a distinct life that is spoken of. Remember what it said in Luke chapter number 1, verse 31. Whenever uh, the angel is speaking to Mary, says this, Behold, thou shalt conceive in thy womb and bring forth a son, Thou shalt call his name Jesus. It doesn't end there. It goes on to say this. He shall be great and shall be called the Son of the Highest. And the Lord God shall give unto him the throne of his father David. And he shall reign over the house of Jacob forever. And of his kingdom there shall be no end. One of the great stories or, or truths of the Christmas story was this. That this child being born to Mary would be a different child a distinct child, would be like no other child that had ever lived in human history. You say, preacher, that's beautiful, but where do we see that in Genesis 3? Well, look a little closer. The Bible says this, I will put, what's this word? Enmity between thee and the woman, and between thy seed and her seed. It shall bruise thy head, and thou shalt bruise his heel. That word enmity means a conflict or a difference. It means a separation of the two. And here's what the Bible says. And of course it's saying more than just merely that there would be a distinction. But included in that, here's what he's telling the devil. Those that belong to you are going to be different from those that belong to her. There'd be a distinction between the two. Uh, this, of course, will ultimately manifest in that ultimate seed of Satan, which is the Antichrist. He is the polar opposite, the antithesis of Christ in character and conduct and, and, and in holiness. And, and there would be a difference between the two. But one of the paramount truths of the Christmas story was how different, how unique, how distinct this child born in Bethlehem was. For instance, we see in the text we read in Luke chapter number 1, he would be different, number 1, distinct in character. Behold, thou shalt conceive in thy womb and bring forth a son. Thou shalt call his name Jesus. He would be the Messiah of God, the Christ, the Christos, the anointed one of 
God. He would be different in His very essence, in His very being. We could say in His very nature. There's never been anybody live like Jesus lived. He was not just a good man. He was not just a teacher. He was not just a religious leader. He was not just a prophet. He was not even an earthly priest, not of the tribe of Levi speaking. Uh, He was not just merely any of those things. He was much more than those things. He was very God in the flesh. Uh, The Bible says it in three ways, that He knew no sin, He did no sin, and in Him was no sin. He wasn't like you and me. If there's anything like us that's like Him, it's only what He has made like Him through being in us. He was wholly separate from sinners, the Hebrew writer said. Different in every way. He was distinct in character. Not only that, He was distinct in conduct. It says this, He shall be called great. He shall be great and shall be called the Son of the Highest. Now again, we use that terminology and it's just draped and dripping with candy canes and poinsettias, but push all that out for just a moment and think about the clear, explicit statement there. He shall be great. Meaning He'll not be common. He'll not be profane. He'll not be mediocre. He'll not be status quo. He'll be completely different from all that. And certainly He lived a great life. A great life. What do you mean by that, preacher? I mean a life that was superlative to everyone else's life. That transcended everyone else's life. Here's how they said it when they heard Him teach. They said, no man ever spake like this man. Here's what they said whenever they saw Him do miracles. Whence cometh this power? Here's what happened when they saw the work of of Christ. They said, we never saw it on this fashion before. Whenever the Lord Jesus came, uh, something entered into the human experience that uh, humanity had never experienced, that they had never known before. Not only that, He'll be great. Not only, He'll be called the Son of the Highest. The Highest. Isn't that an interesting name for God the Father? The Highest. Denoting what? Denoting uh, the elevation, the exaltation of His conduct. That when you looked at Him, it would be becoming the way that He lived, reflecting upon His Father. There are things as a father that my kids do, and I say, not my kid. And I don't mean I wouldn't believe they'd do it, I just mean I'm trying to say, I think that someone else's kid just did that. There's other things my kids do, and I have to go, yeah, that was my kid. Because it's reflective of me. There's things I see them do, and it looks exactly like something I would do. Uh, in the same way, you could look at the conduct of the Lord Jesus and you would see in Him a fit shadow, a fit manifestation, a fit man, uh, expression of the person of the Father. And that's what the Lord Jesus said, right? To Philip, Philip, have you been so long time with me? And yet hast thou not known me? If you've seen me, you've seen the Father. No man has seen God at any time. But the only begotten of the, fa- uh, uh, the, only begotten of the Father which is in His bosom hath declared Him. The Bible says He is the express image of His glory. He was a fit example, His uh, distinct in conduct. Not only that, He was distinct in calling. Look at what it says in Luke 32. The Lord shall give unto Him the throne of His father David. He shall reign over the house of Jacob forever and of His kingdom there shall be no end. What the Lord is saying to the serpent all the way back in the Garden of Eden is when you run into Him, you'll know it's Him. When you run into Him, He won't be one that you can bow, one that you can break, or one that you can buy. He'll be different. He's coming to set up a kingdom, a throne, a righteousness, and an authority uh, to rule with a scepter of righteousness, a rod of righteousness. And certainly the Lord Jesus was distinct in His calling. Uh, you cannot look at the first coming of Christ without having to likewise look at the second coming of Christ. Uh, you, you cannot see Him uh, in the manger and not see Him also upon the throne that He is coming. You cannot see Him uh, there in the cradle and not also think of the crown that He's coming to wear one day. He was different. He was distinct. There was enmity, a difference, a separation, a conflict between Him and the seed 
of the devil. But there's a final thing mentioned. I want to mention it very quickly. Look what it says in verse 15. I will put enmity between thee and the woman and between thy seed and her seed. And what's that going to bring? What's it going to produce? How will that end? He says, it shall bruise thy head and thou shalt bruise his heel. When I read the Christmas story, there are these thoughts that just sort of hover around in my mind. And one is the defiled world that is spoken of. A world that has rejected God, that is broken, that is hopelessly fallen. But I think also of the divine birth of the Lord Jesus, that God so loved the world that He gave His only begotten Son, that, that God intervened and interceded in human depravity and hopelessness, that He pulled back the veil of eternity and stepped into time that He might robe Himself in flesh and be made like unto His brethren. I think about that divine birth, man, that divine nativity, that divine name, that divine nature. When I look at it, I, I can't help but think about a distinct life about a life that was lived that from the cradle to the cross and beyond was markedly different than any other man that ever lived in character, in conduct, and in calling. But when I read the Christmas story, I cannot help but be reminded of the delivering death of the Lord Jesus. You see, with His birth, there is a death that constantly casts a shadow all the days of His life. He is the only one that has ever been born to die with that express purpose The Bible sort of hints at this in Luke chapter number 2, but in a different way. Listen to what it says in verse number 8. And they were in the same country shepherds abiding in the field, keeping watch over their flock by night. Lo, the angel of the Lord uh, came upon them, and the glory of the Lord shone round about them, and they were sore afraid. The angel said unto them, Fear not, for behold, I bring you good tidings of great joy, which shall be to all people. For unto you is born this day in the city of David a Savior, which is Christ the Lord. And this shall be a sign unto you. You shall find the babe wrapped in swaddling clothes, lying in a manger. You see, in that story, we have three things regarding his death that are spoken of. First, his salvation is noted. The Bible says very clear there that he shall save his people. Unto you is born this day in the city of David a Savior, which is Christ the Lord. And you know, you go all the way back to Genesis chapter 3 and you'll find His salvation is noted up too. Did you notice it in the language? It, the seed of the woman, the Lord Jesus Christ, and He's talking to the devil when He says this, it, the Lord Jesus, shall bruise thy head. He's speaking of the cross of Calvary and upon that final death blow that was struck. Now I understand that the devil is still an active enemy, uh, but he's also an appointed enemy. I understand that he is still a devious enemy, but he is likewise a defeated enemy today. I understand he can annoy us. I understand he can thwart us. I understand he can destroy us if we let him, but we are still more than conquerors through him that loved us. And that was accomplished at the cross of Calvary when the seed of the woman bruised the head of the serpent. Uh, it's interesting, one commentator noted this, that the venom that's contained in a snake is, is contained within its head. That's where the glands are. And if you were to bruise a snake's head, whenever your skin bruises or my skin bruises and the dark discoloration appears, that's due to the blood vessels being broken and a distribution of the blood that is under your skin. If you were to bruise the head of a serpent, he'd die of his own poison. <laughs> you know, that's exactly what God is going to do to the devil. At Calvary, what did He do? Him who knew no sin was made sin for us that we might be made the righteousness of God in Him. The devil said through my sinful machinations, I have finally convinced the wicked hearts of men to nail God to a cross. But in doing so, all He did was address that sin in the first place. 
Only God could do something like that. His salvation is noted. And this is a common theme in the Christmas story. Matthew one twenty one says that Jesus would save His people from their sins. Luke chapter 2 verse 11 called Him a Savior. And when Luke chapter number 2 verse 30, whenever Simeon sees them, he says, Mine eyes have seen Thy salvation, which Thou hast prepared before the face of all people, a light to lighten the Gentiles, and the glory of Thy people Israel. A salvation is noted there. But not only a salvation, His suffering is noted. Not only is it going to bruise the serpent's head, but the serpent is going to bruise his heel. Thou shalt bruise his heel. This speaks of the cross of Calvary and of the human suffering that the Lord Jesus endured. And I would go beyond that. Not just a natural, not just a temporal, not just a tangible suffering, but a spiritual suffering that took place on the cross of Calvary. And when you read the Christmas story, there are uh, sort of peppered throughout like potpourri, just, just scattered throughout the Christmas story. All of these little hints to the suffering of the Lord Jesus. One, of course, when the wise men come, they bring unto Him frankincense and myrrh. And myrrh, of course, was an embalming fluid. That would have been very unusual for them to bring unto Him. It was costly, but it was strange that they would bring that to a young child. But they understood, or the Holy Ghost prompted them, I don't know which, but they understood that they were laying this up in store for the day of His death. And often when we read through, we are reminded of Mary's keen awareness of the soon coming death and suffering of her uh, little babe in the manger. The Bible says, Simeon blessed him and said unto Mary his mother, Behold, this child is set for the fall and rising again of many in Israel and for a sign which shall be spoken against. In that is uh, referenced the rejection of the Messiah by Israel. That He would be a sign from God, but they wouldn't receive that sign. Uh, instead, they would reject that sign. They would uh, turn Him away. They would nail Him to a cross. And so there would be a different sign in His place. And you know what the other sign was? Uh, that was in, Because they wouldn't receive the sign that was intended, you know the only sign that was given them was the sign of the prophet Jonah. That as Jonah was three days and three nights in the belly of the whale, so shall also the Son of Man be three days and three nights in the heart of the earth. If they had received the sign that had been given to them, that sign would have been unnecessary. But they spoke against that sign and nailed Him to a cross and a different sign was then instituted. And then Simeon turns to Mary and he says this, Yea, a sword shall pierce through thy own soul also. In other words, you're going to be hurt by this because you're going to see him hurting by this. A preacher friend of mine posted something the other day that struck me speaking about the greatest testimony and evidence of the virgin birth and the divinity of Jesus Christ was Mary's presence at the cross of Calvary. Had for one moment she believed that it was untrue, had for one moment there been any question in her mind concerning the divinity of Christ and the virgin birth, she would have never watched her son suffer and bleed and die a death like the death on the cross of Calvary. She would have cried out. She would have tried to stop it. But instead, all she could do was just weep in silence. For she knew that He was exactly who He said He was. His death is spoken of. His suffering is noted. But then there's one final thing. In Luke chapter number 2, it says this in verse number 12. And this is emphasized in the record of Scripture. This shall be a sign unto you. You shall find the babe wrapped in swaddling clothes, lying in a manger. This has become part of the fair, the decorum, the trappings of Christmas. The idea of a nativity scene and Him lying in a manger, as though that's just normal. As though that's what people did. You had a baby and then you wrapped him in swaddling clothes and you took him out and put him in a feeding trough. Like that's just... That's just what everybody does, right? But in the record of Scripture, this bore great significance. Because whenever uh, the shepherd, remember why these shepherds were raising their sheep, 
Uh, they might have raised some for meat. They might have raised some for wool. But the primary way that these shepherds made their living there in Jerusalem is that they raised a flock with the intention and desire to raise in it lambs that could be sold to the temple for the purpose of sacrifice. And one of the things that a shepherd would do when he had a flock of sheep is uh, whenever the sheep were born, he would pick them up and begin to look all over them. Because remember, not just any sheep could be used for a sacrifice. It had to be perfect and without blemish. And so if he picked up that sheep and looked around and it had a mis- misshapen hoof or maybe a blind eye or, or maybe something wrong with its gait, he would take that sheep and he would let it go and it would go out into the field to grow best as it could and wait slaughter. But if instead he picked that sheep up and it was perfect and it was fit and it had passed his examination, he would take it and lest it go running off and be slain by a predator, lest it go running off and break a leg, he would wrap it in swaddling clothes and he would take it and lay it aside as a fit sacrifice. You see, when they took the Lord Jesus and wrapped Him in swaddling clothes, I have no doubt that Mary was doing nothing other than what was natural as a mother to find what she could, to wrap the baby, to find where she could as a safe place to lay Him. But the Holy Ghost of God in that painted a picture for you and I that He was not just the Son of God, He was also the sacrifice of God. That He was not just the Lord of glory, He was also the Lamb of God slain from the foundation of the world. In those swaddling clothes, He pictured a sacrificial Lamb, perfect without spot, without blemish, that was given for your sins and for mine. Say, preacher, that's beautiful. I've heard it said before. That's wonderful. But I don't see it in Genesis 3. Look a little closer. The Bible says back in verse 21 of our text, And unto Adam also and to his wife did the Lord God make coats of skins and clothed them. You see, not only His salvation and His suffering, but His substitution is noted. That the reason that He would have to go to the cross, be made sin and die, was the same reason that those animals all the way back in Genesis 3 had to be slain and have their skins removed. If mankind was to have fellowship with God after He had sinned, after He had fallen, there had to be a death, there had to be a payment, there had to be a substitute. The book of Hebrews says, without the shedding of blood there is no remission of sins. Uh, without the shedding of blood, doesn't say without baptism by water. Uh, it does not say without church membership. Uh, it, do, it does not say without good works and giving to charity and being a generally good person. It says without the shedding of blood. All those things a man can do and it won't address his sin problem. There has to be blood that is shed to deal with his sin. There has to be a payment, not a promise, a payment made for mankind's sin. And so in light of that, God desiring for there to be some bridge, some means of fellowship, with humanity limited however it may have been by their sin. He said, so that I don't have to strike you down, so that I don't have to kill you, so that this promised seed can one day come from humanity. There will for a time being be a substitute. Uh, we will take animals, we will slay them, but it won't be anything about their blood that, that saves or pardons or cleanses. But it merely is a substitute to remind us that one day there is another substitute coming. And throughout the many long years, no telling how many billions of gallons of blood flowed off that temple mount. None of them able to truly satisfy an offended God. None of them truly able to cleanse a sin-cursed soul. But then one day, the Lamb of God came. The real substitute came. And He was foretold for the first time in your Bible in Genesis 3. He was foretold in word uh, in verse number 15. But He was foretold in image in uh, verse 21, in those skins that were slain, that were, that, that were skinned off to make a covering for mankind. But in Luke chapter number 2, we find Him introduced as the Lamb in swaddling clothes, prepared, born to die in your place and mine. So preacher, it's beautiful. It's wonderful. 
Uh, what do I do with it? I thought about this. Every message I preach, I want, I want to have something that I'm prompting you to do. Not just to give you an academic uh, exercise, not just to flex theological muscles. What do we do with it, preacher? And what do we do with the Christmas story? There are three things that came to my mind. Preacher, how do I respond to it? Number one, you ought to respond in grace. If you've not received the Lord Jesus Christ, you ought to receive Him. That Lamb was given for you. For you. For your sins. For my sins. You ought, you ought to immediately stop right where you are and say, Lord, if you did that for me, if you made a way for me to be saved, if you paid the price to my sin, then what a shame it would be for that gift to be left unopened and for me to never reap the benefits of it. You ought to receive them in grace. Number two, I thought about the word gratitude. We ought to be thankful. We ought to thank God for His unspeakable gift. Hey, listen, the Christmas season ought to be a time not to focus upon uh, others and, and, and gifts and, and food and, and fellowship. And I'm not against any of those things. But it ought to be a time when we are reminded constantly of the great gift that was given to us in the personal Lord Jesus Christ. And I thought about a third thing, and that's the Gospel. You know, whenever the angels appear, they say, I bring you good tidings of great joy. They came all the way from heaven so that those shepherds could know that Jesus was here. And so many of us won't go across the street to let somebody know that Jesus is here. You know, that word good tidings, that's what the word gospel means. It means good news, good tidings. And God thought so much of it that He sent the angels from celestial realms to proclaim it on that night. And all they could talk about was His birth. We can talk about His birth, His life, His death, and His resurrection. Hey, listen, we want to be touched by the Christmas season. You know what it ought to prompt us to do? To do just like what John did when he saw Jesus coming. It says in John 1.29, The next day John seeth Jesus coming unto him and saith, Behold, the Lamb of God, which taketh away the sin of the world. What's the Christmas season about? Preacher, what should I be doing? You're going to be around family over the next week or so, I guess, maybe, unless you can avoid them. You ought to be telling the same thing John did. You ought to tell them, hey, let me tell you about what them swaddling clothes are all about. Let me tell you about what that manger is all about. Hey, let me tell you what that birth is all about. Hey, let me tell you what that death is all about. We ought to be taking the gospel, sharing it on every occasion. We ought to pray. We ought to ask God to give us both wisdom and the words and the right spirit as we interact with family, many of whom will be lost, to give us an open door and an opportunity to share the gospel of Jesus Christ over this next week. We should be asking God to give us a heart of gratitude. And if you're here lost today, don't leave lost. Don't leave lost. Hey, listen, the present of His salvation is wrapped with your name on it, waiting for you. If you'll just come unto Him, He'll save you. He'll change your life. Let's bow together this morning. As a musician comes to play, the altar is open. I wonder what God may have spoken to you about. Uh, some of you have loved ones that you're praying for that you believe to be lost. And you're going to be seeing them over the next few days. I wonder if you've asked God yet to give you the right words, the right wisdom, and an open door to be a witness to Him. If you've not done that yet, won't you come down to this altar and why don't you take a few moments and why don't you ask God to help you as you'll see Him over these next few days. You might just be overwhelmed this morning thinking about all God did for you. Why don't you come down and thank Him. Thank Him yourself. Come down, meet Him at this altar and thank Him yourself for His grace, for His sacrifice, for His gift to you. And you might be here lost and undone. Listen, you don't have to leave that way. Father, bless this invitation. We ask all this in Christ's name.